Hey everyone, welcome back to the Beyond the Arc podcast. I'm here today with a special guest. We have Alex Hoops from uh, YouTube. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, man. I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to this. talking some NBA. Yeah, yeah. We had you on last summer, I think, to talk a little bit Timberwolves when you know the that hype train was still going, <laughs> and then right. the season came around. That kind of and played really well. He had a good season. Jaden had a decent season too, but their season overall probably a little bit disappointing for everyone for sure. But yeah, today for all you listeners, we're gonna meet Alex. You know, we're gonna go through our top five things that we're most interested in watching for this upcoming season. So Alex, I'll open it to you. What did you have for your number one thing? So I guess I should pick, I should probably pick a more, I have topics that are like appealing to a wide range of people. And then there's topics that are like probably, or stories that are like definitely more niche, Yeah. but I'll go with the big one that's near and dear to my heart. And it's what is OKC going to look like? Not necessarily just as an individual team, but more as it relates to the rest of the Western conference, because that's the interesting question. I don't think OKC is going to have a problem improving significantly as a basketball team. I think just about every metric this year is going to go up for them. They're going to improve across the board. But the question is, relative to the rest of the Western Conference, what what will their record look like at the end of the year? Because if you look at what the Western Conference looked like last year, you have the fourth seed Phoenix Suns that went 45 and 37. And then at the 10th seed, the Thunder went 40 and 42. So the difference between the fourth seed and the 10th seed in the West was five games. So even if the Thunder improve across the board by every statistical measurement or eye test or however you want to base their improvements off of, it might not necessarily be reflected in the win column because that margin between each team vying for a playoff spot is so, so small. Yeah, so I had Oak, I had that exact, pretty much that exact same topic too on my list as well. I think a lot of people will be watching that this upcoming season. But you got to think about it, like in terms of just wins in the NBA, there's a limited amount of wins that goes around between all these teams. So it's all relative, like this team can improve, but it's all relative to how these other teams are improving. And, you know, like you said, you know, the West is pretty daunting right now. OKC, they, they're they like the 10 seed. I think yeah, they're right at the edge of that plane. And like you said, that, that gap is just so small. Uh, at the same time, too, you know, they're still playing a lot of young guys, like relatively young guys in the rotation. And that doesn't usually lead to, to winning basketball in the regular season. You have Shea, but they're still kind of in that phase where they're bringing in some bad contracts, like Dallas Bertans, who actually I think might help them from a shooting aspect. Yeah, I'm not totally out on Bertans yet. Yeah, yeah. I understand people's reservations of like, ah, it's just a salary dump. Yeah, yeah. But at least now, you know, they have a true center, or not true center, more of a rim-protecting five in Chad who can also space the floor. That's going to help what they want to do on both ends. And then Jalen Williams, too. Uh, Santa Clara Jalen Williams. I think he's going to have a... He had a really great season last year. I think he's definitely going to going to build on that this year for sure yeah no doubt i'm super excited especially after the preseason game a couple of nights ago that he was that one possession i think i tweeted it and i think you guys saw it but uh he got a dunk just like he got a rebound on the defensive end took it all the way up the floor and just slammed it like right through the yeah. defense it was insane goes back to the other end of the floor on defense gets a a block, gets back on the other end, Giddy passes to Dort, who is in the corner. They're in a three-on-two in transition or something like that, and Giddy passes to Dort. Dort takes the corner three, misses it. Jalen Williams cuts right up the middle, gets the rebound, and puts it back immediately. And the whole bench was just losing their minds at it. It was so exciting. And everyone's excited about Chet. Everyone's excited about Shea. Everyone's excited about Giddy. And... Rightfully, everyone should be excited about Jalen Williams when you're talking about the guys on the Thunder that deserve hype because, yeah, maybe he came in with a little bit higher of a floor, but not necessarily as high of a ceiling as some of the other guys drafted ahead of him. But I don't necessarily think that means Jalen Williams doesn't have a high ceiling or that he has a low ceiling. I still think we don't really know quite yet what he's going to be capped out as because he just keeps showing more and more as his career is going on. And he's definitely a late bloomer type too. So our other co-host, Gavin, he worked, he works for Santa Clara basketball. So he's, he's been around that program for a while. You know, Jay, 
I don't know if you know, but like he came in to Santa Clara, not highly recruited prospect, but he was like, I think Gavin said he was like around like a six foot point guard, like coming into college <laughs> and he grew suddenly six inches and, you know, he's going to carry that skill set with him. He was already, he was playing as a freshman at the size he was at. And, you know, now he's six, six with a, a seven foot something wingspan. Um, so he's a, you know, relatively late bloomer right now. Yeah. We don't know what his ceiling is going to be for sure. Yeah. And also for me too, I really like the, like how the Thunder play, like the, the brand of basketball, their ability to drive closeouts, ball movement. You, you don't see some of the issues you see with like the Houston Rockets, you know, you can compare them as like another rebuilding team. The ball sticks a lot for Houston, but for the Thunder, it doesn't, that's not really the case. They play hard on defense, they're rotating, which allows them to kind of like punch above their weight sometimes in the regular season, just catch a team off guard. Hopefully that can translate to more regular season wins. And they're kind of the first of that group of teams I've been rebuilding for the past couple of years. I'm thinking like Detroit, Houston, OKC. I guess Indiana yeah, you can maybe kind of a throw them bit. into that group. Yeah. yeah. I've been rebuilding the past couple of years, and this is the first team that's they're starting to level up a little bit. Houston's going to try to level up. I, I don't know. I don't know how right. that's going to go. But yeah, OKC is def okay, so definitely going to be a really interesting team to watch this year. So I got, I got it for this next topic. I got, I got to go back to my Timberwolves. I'm really interested to see how a full season of this double big pairing with Cat and Gobert is going to look. Because I think a lot of it stems from that do like how's it going to work how does it complement anthony edwards because just everything that's coming out of the team in the offseason just states that anthony edwards is our guy moving forward but then now you have these two guys that there's a little bit of a question about how it all fits together yeah i've been cautiously optimistic about what i've seen from cat in preseason obviously it's preseason don't put a ton of stock in it because we've seen guys look fantastic in preseason then the regular season is a different story granted cat's a veteran at this point you can probably put a little bit more stock in it but i think the addition of mike conley is probably going to help a lot we didn't get to see a ton of cat uh post delo really much at all towards the end of the season and i think that's not like something that's going to immediately solve their problems there's still other stuff that they're going to have to figure out but like just tons of spread pick and roll with Gobert and Conley and then using Cat as like a guy who obviously is going to be able to light it up from the perimeter just off the catch. But also like it's been said a million times, Cat is an amazing driver and that's one of the things that he is best at is attacking off the catch. And like, how are you going to stop a guy who's seven feet tall, who's that fast driving towards the rim? Stuff like that makes me think that, yeah, there's definitely ways to make this work. Now, defensively, there's going to be problems no matter what. The big thing with Cat is I, I don't necessarily think Cat definitely has situations and possessions where he doesn't give a lot of effort. And then there's sometimes that he gives too much effort and he just starts fouling and he gets himself in foul trouble and then it just ruins the rest of the game for him. And I don't know specifically what the answer is going to be but figuring out a way to mask him on the defensive end because obviously you're not going to be pulling Rudy out to the perimeter as much as you can help it if you can avoid that the Timberwolves are definitely going to try to but that means you have to have Cat somewhere he's not going to be down low most likely because you're going to have Rudy down there so he's going to have to be theoretically on somebody and what is their approach to that and that's really what i'm interested to see because the defense early on in the season when gobert and rudy or when gobert and cat were playing together their numbers actually weren't that bad but you still had the times where like you could see oh yeah cat typically is not a good defender at all yeah, definitely. That beginning of the year, stint. I think they're going to do what a little bit of a trend right now in the NBA. Stick your rim protector on the non whoever the non-shooter is on the other team or the least offensive threat. They're probably going to put Gobert on them and then have Cat up top in as like the pick one of the pick and roll defenders. Which, yeah, yeah, it doesn't always look the best. But hopefully, Gobert can clean some stuff up on the back line. Also, just with that team overall, like the length of that team is absurd. You go into their backup. The backup line of Shake Milton, he's a big guard. I think he's like around 6'4". 
and everyone else is in that lineup they're playing is all bigger than him and always can guard up. And their starting lineup, you have three guys close to seven feet tall. Your average height of seven feet. Yeah. Conley's the smallest guy in the lineup, but he's a veteran. Like, he can find a way. So hopefully that overall collective length, even if they do get in the rotation, they could make those closeouts a little stronger, rotate, change some passing angles, which is how their length is. So that would definitely be something to watch. What did you think about Ant taking that step up in Team USA and how that's going to lead to this year? Yeah, I think that was definitely promising. Team USA had its own collection of issues. And I think some of the times where you could scrutinize Ant, whether it be for bad shot selection or whatever the case may be, some of those might have been a byproduct of a lack of structure with Team USA, a lack of people being on the same page. The, the whole Team USA this year, it was just, it felt like a mess. It just felt like they never really, they would try things that worked and then out of nowhere they would stop doing them and then they would never go back to it ever again for the rest of the tournaments okay you had this stuff that was working fine and then now you're not doing it i don't understand so like with ant the fact that he was able to be so successful in an unstructured environment makes me excited to see what he's like in the, with the timberwolves this year it's that's a, a team that actually has a pretty solid amount of continuity it's been playing with a lot of these same guys for his entire career at this point. So the amount of continuity that the Timberwolves have, obviously the new addition of Mike Conley and, and Gobert last year, those are things that there's still probably a little bit of adjustment happening, but we know that Ant loves work or loves playing with Mike Conley. And as far as we can tell, it seems like he loves playing with Gobert. There was like a little bit of stuff here and there where you'd see clips where, oh, Ant's not happy with Gobert, this, that, whatever. But we see videos of them joking around with each other and having a good time. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of that stuff is just people trying to manufacture narratives. And with Ant, I'm just, I think there are some expectations that are being placed on him that might be a little bit unrealistic. There's, there seems to be a lot of optimism about him turning into this mid-range assassin, which I'm not ruling out. But the thing with me, when I think about what Ant is and what he can be, it's not necessarily the fact that he might not or may not be able to develop a reliable mid-range game. My question is more so, does he even need to? Some guys, yes, they're so good at that that they need to be leveraging it to really get the most out of their game. But with Ant, I'm like, he's very successful. We all know he's one of the best space creators on the perimeter in the entire league. As far as making the shots, that's a different story. It's consistently improved throughout his career, but I'd say he still has a little bit of ways to go before he's probably where you'd want him to be in terms of that upper echelon of perimeter shot creator and shot maker. But creating the space is no problem. And then last year we saw him be, I think, a lot more aggressive getting to the rim. The finishing numbers still have some improvement. I do think some of that is the fact that he's not really historically been given a great whistle. And when you're not getting foul calls, obviously your field goal percentage at the rim is going to look worse because if you miss at the rim and you get fouled, it's not a miss at the rim. But if you miss at the rim and they don't call a foul, then you just missed a field goal. So anyone who's not getting as many foul calls, their field goal percentage at the rim is going to look a lot worse. I think that's been the case for Anthony Edwards last year. But the mid-range stuff, it's, yeah, his percentages are, and they're a little bit below league average. He's definitely got to improve. But I'm like, even if he doesn't become some mid-range sniper, I think this dude is a superstar regardless. I don't think he needs that to reach his potential. And it's uh, on the hierarchy of things that I want Anthony Edwards to improve. The mid-range game is, that's just bonus points. I'm like, whatever. If that happens, great. But I'm more interested in, how he progresses as a defender. I'm more interested in how he progresses as a playmaker and leveraging his scoring ability consciously instead of just necessarily being a reactionary playmaker. And that's what I'm going to be watching for this year with him. Yeah, the playmaking is definitely going to be huge. And a, and a lot of the stuff that's, once again, the Tim Rule has been saying all off seasons is, is that they want more structure on the offensive end for them. I don't know what that exactly looks like yet, We'll see what the Chris Finch has cooked up for the, the season. I think maybe in terms of spacing, maybe something along the lines of that. Because sometimes they, they did get in the way of each other. They didn't really have a full off season because 
Gobert's coming off international play. Cat had that whole sickness thing where he lost a bunch of weight. So they didn't really have any time to build that chemistry, find out where each other, where they're trying to be on the floor. They didn't really have that time to, to put that all together. Now this year they do. They have a full season, a full sample size of what it looked like, how they did it before. They're probably going to change some things coming to the season. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out for sure. Um, what was the next topic you got? So I'll get a little a little more obscure. I came across this stat. I forget exactly what it was. I'm going to try and not butcher it and see if I can find it real quick. But basically, I don't know if you're probably familiar with dunks and threes, but they are the guys who made estimated plus minus, which I'm not like super big on advanced statistics, but in terms of advanced statistics that are available, I think that dunks and threes is pro or EPM is one of the best that's available. And one really interesting thing I came across when I was actually working on a video about Anthony Edwards is that in terms of estimated plus minus, there's offensive EPM and there's defensive EPM. And there are only five players under the age of 25 that had at least a plus one offensive EPM and a plus one defensive EPM. And those players were Anthony Edwards, Franz Wagner, Jaron Jackson Jr., Zion Williamson, which he only played 29 games, so that's a little bit, who knows. And then Nick Claxton. Nick Claxton had a plus 2.1 defensive EPM, but he also had a plus one offensive EPM. And with that level of defensive contribution that he's already showing, like he was one of the best defenders in the entire league for most of the season last year. Obviously, the Nets took a different direction once they made those moves and ended up trading Kevin Durant and Kyrie and all that. But Nick Claxton is already an elite defender. He's going to continue to be an elite defender. But I'm really interested to see if Nick Claxton puts things together a little bit more on the offensive end. That guy goes from being like defensive player of the year caliber player to like all-star caliber player because the defense is already elite. The offense is actually already decent in a lot of ways. He just needs to flesh his offensive game out a little bit more and then all of a sudden you've got a really really strong rounded center on your hands oh yeah 100 percent. that'll be definitely something that i think everyone should keep their eye on just his offensive development because it got stunted a little bit i would say when kd james harden Kyrie, they came in they wanted deandre jordan in they have jared allen already so he got put on the back burner a little bit but now with this kind of new reinvigorated team i think he's gonna get a lot of more of those opportunities and if he can excel as a driver, that's going to be huge because you just look at the spacing on that team. They're always playing four, four guys who can all shoot the ball, four wings a lot of the time next to him. So the space is going to be there. So yeah, I think just about tightening his handle, getting his touch right, because his free throw numbers haven't been great. Right. So yeah, if he, get, if he can get his touch right, get the driving game going, I think that's going to be actually, yeah, something pretty pretty cool for him. And if you look at off-season clips too, I'm pretty, that's just the stuff he's been working on as well, just working on his overall offensive game. Yeah, I think the Nets have a decent assortment of guys to choose from to move forward with, especially Nick Claxton already is a strong young player that most teams would probably want on their young core. But I, if he gets even better, then who knows? They get a lot to work with at that point. Yeah, I'm just like thinking right now, like a dribble handoff with him and Cam Johnson flying off that him faking it, turning the corner, getting to the basket, stuff like that. That could be really exciting if the the Nets can do that on top of what, what he brings as a defender and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, the next topic I had, it, it's a bigger topic, but are you looking at a lot of the contenders we have? Let's say Boston, Milwaukee, Denver, Phoenix. T to me, those teams feel very top-heavy. You look at Boston, right? You have Holiday, Porzingis, Brown, Tatum, probably all top 40 players at this point. And then you're immediately getting Derek White, who's a good player, but then you're getting to guys, some unproven guys, Pritchard, Luke Cornett, O'Shea Brissett. Delano Banton, Sam Hauser, and then look at the Bucks and Bucks after their core guys. Your Bobby Portis playoff time. He's a hit and miss just defensively. Connaughton, probably like a fringe rotational playoff guy. And then you're getting to Jay Crowder and Malik Beasley. And those guys haven't really been in the playoff rotations for them for any team they play on for a minute now. Denver too. Denver, I think, might be have the weakest bench out of everyone. Christian Braun is the first guy off their bench. And 
he was almost out of the rotation for the Nuggets last year on their championship run. And then Reggie Jackson, Zeke Naji, and the Phoenix Suns, a lot of the talk, they had good minimum signings, right? But at the end of the, those, end of the day, those are minimum guys. They all have distinct weaknesses. And you look at their bench, like you don't really see like a clear who is going to be their sixth man. So a lot of those teams, they have some, suffer some major injuries. Like it's, it's icy for them at that point. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's one of those things where not a single one of those teams is going to, I don't want to say it's almost guaranteed that they're going to deal with injuries, but in some capacity, they're going to, they're going to realize they're shorthanded at some point, whether it's because of injuries, whether it's because someone outside of their main group of guys doesn't live up to the expectations that they have. And there are ways to address that, whether it's through the trade market or the buyout market. They hypothetically are not stuck with these guys that they have. Um, really, the Bucks are probably the team I'm most concerned about, simply because their bench, it's not like they have a ton of unproven young guys. They have a ton of just old guys that maybe aren't necessarily as good as they used to be. It's, it's one thing if you've got young guys that are at least going to be healthy throughout the season, or yeah, maybe you take a step back, but these younger guys are getting reps. They're improving as the season goes on. To me, having young guys that are on like a slight upward slope the entire season is a lot more comfortable heading into the playoffs than just a team full of old guys on the bench that are just slowly on a downward trend the entire season it's like one of those situations is significantly better than the others and that's why i'm more worried about the bucks than i am the celtics the Nuggets, what was the other team that we mentioned? The Suns. The Suns, they're working with a lot of young guys on minimums somehow. I, I don't know how they talked a lot of those young guys into signing those minimums, but they did because I think some of, the, some of those guys could have gotten pretty good deals elsewhere, but that's besides the point. The Bucs, it's, no, you have Joe Ingles, you have Jay Crowder. Those Joe, guys Joe aren't Ingles young. Joe gone. He's on the Magic now. Oh, he's on the Magic now. Yeah. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's... They're really the one that I'm most concerned about in terms of the injury bug or the lack of depth. I just think at a certain point when it comes to veteran players who are kind of in the later stages of their career, that is where things get pretty dicey. We've seen teams pull it off before. The Lakers did it, had, had, a, lot, had a roster pretty packed full of older players in the bubble back in 2020. They won a championship. So it's not impossible to win that way. It's just, I think they're pretty fragile they're just in a very fragile state throughout this entire season so we'll see how it plays out for them the bucks got you know marjan marjan beauchamp and very uh, excited for him <laughs> yeah and then, and but then you're getting in terms of young guys you're getting really quickly into the andre jackson like i mean he's a rookie you know he has some shooting woods he's he's an interesting skill set but is he gonna be a contributor right away the end of their bench they have some young guys but a lot of them are very rook rookies even the rookies are like unproven sort of guys and then you have the finosses on the tumbo and like robin lopez at the end of that bench so yeah it does get pretty dicey I, actually i was thinking for them like at first i thought they had a maybe a, a not maybe not the worst bench but now that you you bring that up i think you might be on to something with that because yeah that bench does get pretty it does get pretty scary deep into there. And yeah, I guess a lot of the other, other teams like Boston, a lot of the, a lot of the guys they brought, and they're all under the age of 26. We're around that range. Like Pritchard's, you know, 25, Brissett's 25, Delano Band's 23, Phoenix, like you said, Nasir Little, Bulbul. We'll see how Bulbul does. I don't, I don't know if he'll have a role on that team. Kita Bates, Diop, he's interesting. And they're all relatively young, but yeah, you're right about the Bucks. Yeah, a lot of older sort of bench guys but at the same time that all might not matter look at the nuggets last year so i think their bench unit that was an area of concern for them but then they just end up playing an eight-man rotation and they end up winning the whole thing so maybe some of these other teams can do that we'll see but i think that's what makes the season interesting because there's not i think this has been a trend for the past couple of years though there's just not a clear contender um yeah so yeah yeah do you want to move on to your next topic yeah, so this one, it's not as widely talked about storyline, but the Pacers, I think offensively, 
they're in a really good position. They have a lot of reliable pieces. Tyrese Halliburton is, he's looking like a top end point guard in the NBA. They've got Buddy Heald still. They've got Miles Turner. They got a lot of young guys starting to come up. Benedict Matherin, Andrew Nemhard. They just drafted Jarris Walker. They've, they're equipped with strong offensive tools, but they were like the fifth worst defense in the entire NBA last year. They were really bad. And I have a feeling they're probably going to end up being one of the better offenses in the league this year. Last year, they were around league average. They were fine. This year, I think they're definitely going to improve on the offensive end. But if they're going to take that next step, which they're the team in the East that's being predicted, as far as what I've noticed, being predicted to go from being the later lottery team to maybe upper play in low playoff lock realm of teams. I don't know if that's going to happen if their defense can't take that next step. Jarris Walker, I think, is going to help a lot because he's a strong defensive player. Him and Miles Turner are going to be able to uh, do a lot of damage, but you're still left with definitely a weaker link on the perimeter with Tyrese Halliburton, Benedict Matherin, and I think he has the ability and the potential to be a good defender. But right now, I think the jury's kind of still out on that. We're going to have to see what this season looks like. Obviously, when the expectation is to win, players tend to play a lot better defense. When the expectation is to lose, you're not going to get as strong of defensive performances from guys. So maybe all it's going to take is a shift in mentality this year for them to improve as a defensive unit. But from what we saw last year, Jarris Walker, him being drafted is not going to be enough to turn this team into a at least league average defense overnight. So it's going to take something else. And the question that I am asking heading into the season for them is just how are they going to address that? Is it a schematic thing? Are they going to have to adjust rotations? What's what is the process of turning this defense around going to look like? Yeah, just the issue with them, they just have no plus defenders that are at like a wing size. Like, you know, they're playing lineups with Heald, Bruce Brown, Tyrese Halliburton, who are all around 6'5". So they're just a really small team just on the perimeter. So it's not like they have bad defenders, but at least they're 6'7", 6'8". They're poor defenders, and they're also 6'5", 6'4". How much is Bruce Brown really going to help? He's probably going to be like a point of attack defender for them, but... He's not really doing that much damage as like a help defender, like blowing things up. And Jairus Walker, I think eventually he can be a pretty solid defender. But I just watching that, watching that Houston a little bit, I wasn't super, super impressed by his defense. Like he felt a little bit more, more like a cog in the machine type defender than a guy you can like completely build your scheme around. And For sure. Yeah. yeah. And I was watching their first preseason game and he was getting worked defensively. His man would come up set like a, a screen with slip it. You get caught off guard by the slip, completely giving that up. A lot of young player mistakes. Right. Um, I like some of the stuff he does off ball more than on ball, which is what I'm interested with him and Miles Turner is you have two, two guys. Miles Turner has obviously been around a lot longer and Jairus, we're going to have to see how, how things develop for him, but two guys that are able to help and provide deterrence more on a help side basis, I think that's really interesting. But yeah, as far as on ball goes, he definitely doesn't, at least right now, answer the questions that they have, which it's actually, I wrote it down here. They had pretty great rim defense. Teams only shot 64.2% at the rim against them last year. So that's pretty good. I, that was, I believe, in the 90th percentile among the rest of the teams in the league. But from the perimeter, teams shot like, 37% from three against them. It was just abysmal. So they that's really where they're going to have to patch things up. Yeah, I know like statistically people say opponent three-point shooting, that's not some, that's like completely like luck-based. But I feel like they're, I feel like with them, they're you're closing out with smaller guys. Maybe your rim defense is good. You have Turner, but maybe you're over-collapsing. Maybe you're over-helping. That's leading to more wide-open threes. Obviously, I don't really know exactly, but Right. There's probably a reason why teams shoot a little bit better against them. When it comes to the middling teams in terms of 
those three-point shooting numbers, it's okay. Yeah, everyone's like around the 36, 37%. But when you get into the lower bottom tier teams, it's, oh yeah, they're giving up. They're giving up 39% from three for a reason. That's really bad. (laughs) Yeah, and there's usually at least a slight correlation between the the lower echelon of defensive teams and like better three-point opponent shooting. So there's definitely at least some sort of connection there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, offensively, I really like what they're doing. I think Buddy Heald looks like he's they're gonna they're looking to move him right now. So maybe they turn him yeah. into some sort of wing, just some guy that's six seven and can just <laughs> play the three and, and just do something there. I think that yeah. that would be nice. Even though I like his fit next to Halliburton, just with their connection and his just super aggressive three point shooting, I like that combination. Mm-hmm. But yeah, all right. The next thing I had down was um, oh, there's two different things. Okay, I'm gonna go with the, this other one. Um, kind of like a very kind of hot takey type question, but does Victor Wembanyama win Rookie of the Year? Cause, so just watching him in summer league, like he was good. And you saw those amazing, amazing flashes, but it might have been just coming off a long season in the league he was playing in France. But I just I don't really know if the raw production is going to be there right away. That's just kind of my concern. And I think maybe like. You know, a Scoo Henderson might have a, a little bit of a better year, possibly. That's just my my take on it. Yeah, I've gone back and forth on this. I've actually talked about it with a bunch of people at this point. And it's tough because I know the Spurs have also said some things to the extent of we're going to limit. I think they worded it like we're going to limit the situations we put him in or something like that. Like they're going to be very picky about the situations he's exposed to or whatever. So I don't know if that was like a fancy way of saying they're going to load manage him. So already I'm, I'm thinking like there's a chance the games played are not even there for him to win rookie of the year. Now in a vacuum, assuming he theoretically plays 65 games this year, it's going to depend entirely on really the role that he's playing and how he's used, obviously they're going to do everything in their power to make him the guy on that team. But the issues that I've noticed in summer league and then uh, preseason as well, granted, like we said, it's whatever, but if preseason is any indication, they don't have a ton of guys who are going to be able to be table setters for him. He can do stuff on his own. We've seen him do it, but I, don't necessarily think that will be his strength right out of the gate. We've seen flashes. We know that he can do it occasionally. We know he can do absolutely insane stuff and drill step back threes falling out of bounds. It's Yeah, he's going to have those moments, but there's also going to be the times where someone needs to feed him in the post and they're not make, they're not capable of making an entry pass that finds him where they need to, or, they're not going to have somebody who's capable of getting it to him on the roll. There's a bunch of different variables that come with him being on a team that was the worst team in the NBA last year. It's yeah. They don't really have a ton of personnel that's going to be able to set him up and get the ball to him in positions where he's going to be able to be most effective. And to me, that's where his biggest hindrance is going to come as far as statistical output, because if, even if you are capable of putting up 20 points per game as a rookie on decent efficiency, if you don't have guys who can get the ball to you where you're going to be able to get those points, which rookie of the year is kind of just a counting stats competition for the most part, I think the, the, the blocks are going to be there because he's going to be a great defender from day one. Other guys aren't going to be able to control that for him. But on the offensive end, Wemby is a decent rebounder, but he's never really been particularly superb rebounder it's actually surprising when you look at some of his rebounding numbers from the french league that he played in it's yeah they're good he's getting i think he got eight or nine or something like that throughout their playoff run last year he's seven feet four so the expectation for rebounds is the rebounding in the block numbers is that going to be enough to get him rookie of the year is the reputation alone going to be enough to get him rookie of the year but as far as the scoring output, that's the only hangup that I have, assuming he does play 65 games to put him in contention for it. 
it's yeah, he might just not really have the weapons around him that make it easy enough for him to get those points. But who knows? Yeah. I wonder what the rookie of the year odds are. I wonder if he's the favorite because that might not be a terrible bet to place. I get for like a Scoot Henderson or something just because right. there, there are so many variables with him because he's not self-creation wise right now. He's just not really going to be there. There's flashes, of course, but he just hasn't really been efficient in those spots at all. And then is, yeah, like you said, the rebounding and block numbers and defense is it's, he's going to have to probably average an absurd amount of blocks, maybe close to three blocks, get grab a double digit rebounds and then maybe average 15 points. And I could see that. I could see that maybe, but that's, it's just a harder pathway. And I think Scoot, he's been playing close, semi close to this level for two years now. He's going to have the ball in his hands a lot more. He can create for himself, create for others really well. I think he might be actually a pretty, pretty good bet over one Benyama for uh, rookie of the year. Yeah. To me, the top three is going to be, and this is in no order, but I think the three guys that it's going to be between is Wemby, Scoot, and Chet. I think it's going to be a clear battle between those three guys. Yeah. I was trying to think of who that third person was going to be. Brandon Miller, but yeah, Chet forgot. I completely forgot that he was a, he's a rookie, the, the Blake Griffin rookie. So I'm looking at the odds right now and one Binyama is the favorite which makes sense because that people right. just want to bet on him uh, for sure because because of the name but yeah, mm. i don't think it might be a bad idea for a skew henderson bet just because of our, yeah, our what, are, what are the odds for those three so i'm just looking at fan fandle so one Binyama's at minus 160 skew henderson's plus 400 chet's plus 700 oh i'm not a huge betting i, I don't know exactly i'm not either but means. I'm a little surprised that the odds are that high for, for Scoot and Chet. I would have expected them to be closer to neutral, at least. Yeah. For Wemby, that makes sense. I'm actually surprised they're only, what, did you say minus 160? Minus 160. Yeah, I'm a little surprised they're only that, but, huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, I might have to place a bet on that. Who yeah, I don't bet, but. <laughs> yeah. Did you have another topic that you wanted to bring yeah, up? Yeah. The thing that I keep coming back to in the Eastern Conference that's like a wild card is the Cavs. And I'm just like, we know they're going to be a great defense because they have one of the best defensive front courts in the NBA, and they found ways to make Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell passable on the defensive end. But come playoff time, how long are they going to be able to get away with having essentially, I don't want to say... I don't want to say non-factors on the offensive end, but Evan Mobley is pretty, at least right now, pretty limited in his offensive game. He's mostly relegated to pick and rolls and the occasional post-up. But as far as pick and roll stuff, it's like Jared Allen's there also. So he's already having to split pick and roll touches with Jared Allen. And whenever those possessions are occurring, where is Evan Mobley on the floor? What is he doing? Yes, he's operating as a screener, setting flare screens and pin downs for other guys on the floor. But after that, he's on the wing somewhere, and occasionally he's getting passes kicked out to him off of drives or out of the pick and roll. And after that, what's he able to do? What is he contributing on the offensive end when he's getting the ball on the wing in those situations where he's not the man in the middle? And he's shown to me that he can actually do a decent amount of stuff attacking closeouts, but the problem is teams aren't necessarily eager to close out on Evan Mobley. His catch-and-shoot numbers, I've I mentioned this in a video recently, Evan Mobley's catch-and-shoot numbers are terrible. Like I would say they're probably among the worst in the entire NBA of at least any starter, but I would be interested to see how low compared to the rest of the field he ranks because it's I think it was 28% from the field off catch and shoots as a whole and 20% from three and it's not like the volume was crazy high it was like 1.3 or 1.8 catch and shoot threes per game so you know that's not a ton over the course of the entire season but to me that's kind of part of the problem is like he's not really attempting these a whole lot because when he is attempting them they're more than often not going in. So if you can't command defenses to come out to you on the perimeter, the fact that you are actually surprisingly decent attacking a closeout doesn't matter a whole lot because the defense is just going to wait for you down there because 
they like the math on a 20% catch and shoot three. Like they'll take that every day. So I, I really need to see something from Evan Mobley this year offensively. I don't know what that is specifically, but I would say the obvious thing is like he needs to command some level of defensive attention so that they can really open things up on the offensive end. Otherwise, it's just going to be really difficult for them when Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland aren't getting their shots to fall during the playoffs, when Jared Allen can't put the ball in the basket during the playoffs. They need to take the tension off somehow. They need some guy who's going to hit a timely three or something like that. And Evan Mobley's got to be on the floor most of the time because his defense is incredible. But they got to get something out of him on offense. Yeah, and that was the issue they ran into the Knicks series. They were just atrocious in that series offensively. And I think part of it, too, because you can just put two on the ball and Garland or Mitchell make mm-hmm. Mobley play in that short roll. He takes the free throw line jumper. Okay, you live with that. Jared Allen's in the dunker spot. Mitchell Robinson's going to play for that lob over a Mobley floater. Just getting that in-between game, I think. I, the the three-point shot, it'd be nice, but I think the more realistic, uh, right now, I think that in-between game might be yeah. the more crucial part. Just, just little, like, 18-footers, stuff like that. Just push shots. Yeah, just like, make that big step up a little bit, and that'll open his passing. Because I don't think he's not a bad passer at all. Like, not at all. I actually yeah. think he's a pretty decent yeah. passer. Yeah, he has pretty good decision-making, t- pretty good touch on those passes. It's just It's a matter of getting that defensive attention to open that sort of that part of his game up. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, he, at the end of the day, Cleveland still, still won. They won 51 games last year. So the regular right. season, I think they'll be all right. They have size. They'll, they'll wall off the rim a lot. Mitchell Garland are going to, you know, go off in the regular season. You bring in Nyang, Struess, hit some threes in, in the regular season as well. It's just, yeah, in the playoff time is just whatever happening against that, that New York series. New York ter- was a terrible matchup for them, I think. But, yeah, that just, that can't happen again, especially with Mitchell. There's a little bit of murmuring that he might get out and right. not sign that extension. I was listening to the Dunked On podcast as well. He brought on Chris Fedor, I think. He's a Cavs beat reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently, or he said that um, a lot of the people in within the Cavs organization, a lot their sentiment is that in order for this team, in order for this team to be a championship contender, Mobley needs to be our best player because Mitchell and Garland are what they are at this point. Um, yeah. If you think about it, and Mobley's the one guy where it's a little bit more untapped his his potential right now. So if he can, if he becomes their best player, I think. And you just think about in pecking order wise, if Mobley's your number one, Mitchell's your number two, Garland's your number three, that's really. That's a really nice team you got there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they're expecting a lot of things out of him. We'll see if it comes in time. Yeah. Okay, my, my last topic. So, I have a little bit of question about the Houston Rockets because it, it does feel yeah, like they've... That was prema- my last one as well. Okay, perfect. <laughs> they, they prematurely jump-started this rebuild. You know, you bring in Dylan Brooks, Fred Van Fleet. I like Van Fleet's fit, uh, fit a little bit. They're going to stabilize... They're going to stabilize the offense a little bit. It's just that you're taking shots away from some of the young guys, going back and forth on just like the moves they make. Because on one hand, it's like you want to see these young players play. At the same time, you've seen these young players play, and they've been atrocious for the past couple of years. Just from an on-court perspective to off-the-court perspective, with Christian Wood and the Kevin Porter thing, it's good that they're not no longer in that situation. But yeah, hopefully they can kick that culture up a little bit, get a little better. But yeah, what, what were your thoughts on that, those moves? Yeah, to me, they didn't need to do the signings that they did. I think getting Ime Yudoka coaching-wise, that was a good decision. He's a good coach, and he's going to be able to kind of mold things with those young guys and figure out how to best utilize them. And from an X's and O's perspective, the stuff that he was doing in Boston, I think is going to work really well with Houston. But they did, I don't want to say lock themselves into this group of guys, but I do think they sacrificed some level of flexibility in favor of maybe being a a play-in team. I I really genuinely don't see them being a, a top six seed. So they made these signings with the outcome most likely being at best high-end play-in team because I think the rest of the field in the Western Conference is just way too competitive. I, Even with their signings in the offseason, like regardless of how good you think they are, I think most people would agree 
those signings did not take them from being one of the worst teams in the league to somehow being a legitimate playoff team in the West. Obviously, it depends on the improvements they get from their young guys because there's a chance Jalen Green goes out there and all of a sudden he's some 30-point-per-game guy who's unlocked his playmaking and Shengun somehow becomes passable on the defensive end and Jabari Smith Jr. is this mid-range assassin all of a sudden like we saw in the summer league. It's Yeah, those things could happen. And if that's the case, yeah, maybe this team does somehow manage to snag a sixth seed. But all of those things happening does not seem likely to me. And the guys they brought in are just not good enough to elevate the floor of your team that much. So this was more of a let's get ahead of this thing and sign guys now and start building continuity with each other. I don't think they needed to sign guys now to build that continuity, but they did and they can't really do anything about it. They could trade guys down the road if it comes to that, but at this point, it's less about, to me, it's less about, okay, should we have done this? Shouldn't we have done this? And more about how do we make the best of it moving forward? And the only thing I'm really concerned about with them is that there are going to be guys whose development is going to be significantly stunted because Fred Van Vliet's going to be taking 20 shots a night. Dylan Brooks is going to think he's the second option for some reason and put up 15-plus shots a night. And then all of a sudden, you've got guys like Jabari Smith Jr., whose development actually seems to be coming along pretty well if you're going off of some of the stuff he was disappointing with last year and then the things he looked better at during summer league and then the things that he's looked better at doing during preseason. It's okay, you could be pretty optimistic about where he's headed as a player, but all of that's going to be tapered a little bit if all of a sudden Fred Van Vliet is the lead guy and Dylan Brooks is the second option. It's okay, yeah. How much did this help your team? And then also like, these guys aren't getting to develop as much as they should anymore. Yeah. To me, the smooth, these signings, it feels like to me, the ownership, they wanted this to happen. I feel like it, it came from, not from the general manager. It probably came from pressure from ownership. We need to bring in some sort of, you know, winning guys. Cause we don't have our picks over right. the next couple of years. We don't winning guys. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's the, you get Fred Van Fleet on a $40 million deal. First of all, I don't know how you're going to trade 31 year old Fred Van Fleet on a $42 million deal with, I believe it's a player often too at the end of it. It's just, yeah. I mean, you just have to overpay. You just have to overpay for, to get a guy like him. But yeah, I, I, I really think it's probably Tillman Fertitta giving pressure to the front office. We got to bring in some sort of winning guy them he doesn't want to see like a losing product because any norm because nba gms they're all super super smart guys like I, I assume like they're acting in their best interest that's my running assumption and whenever there's right. kind of just like questionable moves like they're they're doubling down on the mediocre team like you saw the wizards it's coming from the ownership it's not coming from the front office and they're just that's who they work for that's their boss at the end of the day so that's they're going to make these moves that to us feel like pretty questionable but they're getting pressure from the outside. Like you said, I, I think it is smart to look at, okay, how do we make this work now versus should we've done it? Should we've not done it? Because it, it, it's happened already. The one right side from a culture perspective, maybe this will breed some sort of, I guess like winning habits, just some sort of more positive culture with this team. Because all the stuff that's come out of Houston the past couple of years has just not been, it's just not been great at all. All the way, going all the way back to when James Harden wanted out on this team. Starting from that, it just hasn't, nothing's been good about or anything that's come out of that, that, that locker room hasn't been great. So they'll hopefully bring in veterans, Brooks, Van Fleet, Jeff Green, Jock Wandale, Boa Marshalovich, maybe work some of his charismatic personality in there. Hopefully that leads to a little bit more of a positive product. But I, winning, like winning wise, like it's the same theory with OKC about they might take a step up as a team and it's just not going to show up in the win column because right. everyone in the West is good. Yeah, I uh, we were doing we were doing the shoot around podcast last week and we were doing a hot takes episode. And one of the hot takes we got was Houston being a 40 win team and any for pretty much any team having an 18 win improvement from season to season is already pretty unusual. That doesn't happen a lot. That's pretty rare. But. For Houston to go from 
22 wins to 40 wins. I was like, in this Western Conference, OKC got 40 wins by the skin of their teeth, and they got better. New Orleans got 42 wins, and they just got Zion back. The Timberwolves had 42 wins. The Lakers had 43 wins. It's like, you think the Rockets are going to go from 22 wins to 40 wins? To, to me, they're like a, at least, at bare minimum, a two years from now team, not a this year team. It's going to be a while. This is going to be a process of development and building and weeding guys out as time goes on because this is, they are not a right now team. They're just not. No, def- definitely not. I think just the hope is this hopefully brings some sort of positive direction in terms of people's development. But like even the guys they brought in, I don't even know how much they help. Like, from an encore perspective, I don't know how much right. they help. Yeah. Did you have another topic that you wanted to bring up? Is that we exhausted them all? That, that, I had, that was it? The last one I had was the Rockets. Did? Okay. Man. All right. We hit it. <laughs> all right. Cool. I think so. This is a good place to wrap up. Alex, let people know where they can find all your work. Yep. Alex Hoops on YouTube. That's the name of the channel. If you search Alex Hoops, you should be able to find it at Alex Hoops underscore on Twitter. I'm tweeting, posting videos. Yeah. If uh, you like the NBA, you hopefully will like my stuff too. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you make your you know content very, it's very high level type of analysis, but you make I it accessible. It. For people, for every, yeah, for everyone to understand. Oh, I saw. The, I didn't know you were doing a podcast. I didn't. I didn't see that. So, what is it called? It's called the Shoot Around. I do that with Rusty Buckets and then his video editor Rudy St. Clair. We've been doing that for six, seven months now, something like that. Like, How did I not see that? It's uh, on I'll his. It's, so we used to have a dedicated channel for it, but now we do it on Rusty's second channel, and it's under the Live tab. So whenever I tell people that. We do the podcast called The Shoot Around. They go and search The Shoot Around and they find the old channel that hasn't had an episode on it in a long time. And they're like, oh, I couldn't find your new episodes. I have to explain what I'm explaining right now. So. I see. Okay. But yeah, give Alex a follow, subscribe, all of that. Appreciate um, it. Yeah. And thank you, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. It's always a yeah. good time. I appreciate it. Yeah. For our listeners, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Arcade and also follow us on any streaming platform. Thank you.